Hey everybody, my name is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Rob's Observations and we are going to waste no time whatsoever jumping right into what I think is going to be just one great episode. Just a great episode uh, of Rob's Observations. A great episode which will be one in, I believe, a whole lot of great episodes, okay? That, that, that are on its way from this amazing source that has landed, which... Uh, which, which we'll get into in a little in, in a little while here. We're gonna we're gonna source all of this stuff. It's so fun. I, I this is the kind of stuff I I live for. Maybe you like me at one point in time subscribed to all the entertainment magazines, not blogs, not online, not 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 when it was free and you had to deal with pop up ads. There was a magazine called Premier Magazine. It was my favorite magazine. I lived for Premier Magazine's summer predictions in the May issue that always came out. Premier Magazine was like a more of a, 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 a intellectual, you know, look at. They balanced kind of a more uh, professorial approach, you know, scholarly approach to filmmaking, along with the, the pop of it. You'll get Tom Cruise on the cover of Empire uh, of, of Premier Magazine. Empire Magazine is another great one, by the way. But you'd get Tom Cruise on the cover, and you get a great interview, a Rolling Stone type interview, something that, that was that, that was longer, that was deeper, but you'd also talk to the director, the cinematographer, you'd, you'd uh, the screenwriter. Premier Magazine really celebrated the, you know, sausage making of movies. I hate that term, but you guys know what I, they, they use it in politics all the time. But the behind the scenes, you know, getting all of the ingredients, many more of the ingredients than you would normally hear from, all got their say in Premier Magazine. Entertainment Weekly started up Kind of as Premier Magazine's influence was waning. Premier Magazine would ultimately be put out to rest in the middle of the 90s. It was very sad. It was my, uh, man, it was just a great, great magazine. So many great reviews, uh, interviews, analysis. And uh, and then Entertainment Weekly was more of like the pop uh, version of that. And 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 they, they, they balanced it as well, but they only had as much, um, they didn't have as many pages. They didn't devote as many pages to any of the interviews. So just by uh, the selection that Premier would give you uh, and, and, and the length of each of their subjects, it was just more preferred to me. As a kid, it was Starlog, it was, you know, uh, Fangoria, all, all of these different movie pop culture magazines along with all the comic book magazines that I've mentioned. Comics Interview, Amazing Heroes, Comics Journal, uh, eventually, Wizard, Hero, all these different, um, and, and, and all, all these different publications. Uh, comic Scene, really great, uh, short-lived, but one of the best produced. Uh, uh, an affiliate of the the same publisher that gave you Starlog and Fangoria. But uh, you know, I love knowing the hows and the whys of everything, and uh, you know. You, you, it, something that goes beyond the fact that, you know, Tom Cruise is going to star in Mission Impossible, you know, 10. Like, that's very basic. They get you excited. But maybe there's some other stuff that goes beyond there. Maybe there's a super fight to get 10 made in the first place. And and literally, the Mission Impossible franchise had that between installments three and four. So it's all that stuff. I love reading about process. I love reading about triumphs. And today we got... Both of those, and they are right in our wheelhouse because it's Marvel Comics uh, focused, and specifically the MCU. I'm going to read to you 
a headline. August 31st, 2015. We're going to start with an August 31st, August 31st headline from 2015 that broke in the Hollywood Reporter. It said exclusive. Uh, Kim Masters and Matthew Bellini. Bellini. I'm sure it's, it, it, he would pr- prefer Bellini. Uh, were the authors of this exclusive that broke on Hollywood Reporter the last day of August, 2015. Now, 2015... We had uh, seen uh, a number of, you know, Marvel. Marvel had expanded, and uh, and and they had had already so many uh, successes under, you know, under their belt by, by, by 2015. But I'm just going to read this to you. Marvel shakeup. Film chief Kevin Feige breaks free of CEO Ike Perlmutter. Ike Perlmutter is the owner of Marvel Comics. He 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 emerged as the owner when they came out of the bankruptcy, which we've talked in several different podcasts. And a bankruptcy that was not caused by low comic sales. I, I, you know you've hit the bottom of the barrel when on the internet somebody says, oh, you know, the, the Marvel editorial of the 90s brought them to bankruptcy. No, they didn't. Marvel editorial marvel publishing was the only profitable division at that point a sticker company a toy company a distribution company um there's other stuff a, a trading card company that they were they had bought too many items too much stuff was bleeding red ink it took them in they couldn't pay for all the stuff that they had and to keep it going so they had to file bankruptcy marvel comics was affected by it but was no way the cause and kept running without missing a beat the entire time and buying a toy company and buying a sticker company, those are big, big, giant with multiple tentacles companies, multiple arms, okay? I mean, it's just like, oh, a toy company. No, toy company, that's giant. Then you add a sticker company. Then you add a distribution company that, you know, uh, I mean, on top of the the comic company. I mean, it was just, it, just it, it was too much and it buckled. But when it was all done, Ron Perlman no longer owned Marvel and Ike Perlmutter did. He came out on top. And so from the early 2000s on, Marvel began their, to become the new Marvel that we know now that has these great movies, starting with the X-Men, continuing with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Uh, they, they, they transformed their future through cinema, really. The cinematic uh, transference of their entire catalog was um, behind Kevin Feige's efforts from the beginning as an associate on those X-Men and Spider-Man films, he then came into power running the Marvel Studios arm. This headline, Marvel Shakeup, film chief Kevin Feige breaks free of CEO Ike Perlmutter after Feige's years of frustration. This is a headline in the Hollywood Reporter, one of the biggest trades uh, in, in, in the business, in the entertainment business. After Feige's years of frustration, the studio's movie group will now report to Disney's Alan Horn. <clears throat> As a picture of Kevin Feige, after what one source describes as several years of frustration, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige has pulled off a reorganization of the vaunted film company that has him reporting to Disney studio chief Alan Horn, as opposed to the infamously micromanaging Marvel Entertainment CEO Isaac Ike Perlmutter. Feige, the architect of Marvel's transition from a flailing comic book company to a film powerhouse that was sold to Disney for $4 billion in 2009, is said to have vented his unhappiness to Horn 
and Disney CEO Bob Iger earlier this summer. The reorganization was put into effect last week, according to sources. Marvel Studios is taking the next logical step in its integration with the Walt Disney Studios joining Pixar and Lucasfilm in centralizing many of its film-related functions in Burbank with Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige and co-president Luis D'Esposito continuing to lead the Marvel Studios team, reporting to Walt Disney Studios chairman Alan Horn. A Disney spokesperson tells The Hollywood Reporter in a statement, the revamp is a blow to New York-based Ike Perlmutter, a low-profile billionaire who's contributed to Marvel's reputation in Hollywood for frugality and secrecy. As THR reported in a 2014 feature, he attended the premiere of Iron Man in a disguise to go undetected and once complained that journalists at a press junket were allowed two sodas instead of one. Jeff Loeb, head of Marvel Studio, uh, head of Marvel Television, continues to report directly to Perlmutter, who will maintain oversight of Marvel's TV group, publishing, animation, and other New York-based operations. Perlmutter 70, 72 is said to have accepted Feige's insistence on the film group breaking free. But the movie, the move, illustrates the power that Feige has amassed within the Disney empire, having overseen a slate of films since 2009 that has grossed more than seven billion, while rival Warner Brothers has struggled to turn its DC superheroes into a comparable cinematic universe. Disney has plotted out Marvel films through 2019. Again, this article that I am reading to you is. August 31st, 2015. They were four years ahead at the time of this writing. The shift also evidences the tricky executive politics that Iger, Bob Iger, must manage as a result of assembling several freestanding fiefdoms under the Disney banner over the last decade. Pixar Animation Studios, Lucasfilm, and Marvel have been key acquisitions that brought with them valuable intellectual property assets and creative expertise. But each silo is overseen by powerful executives, such as animation gurus John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, producer Kathleen Kennedy and Perlmutter and Feige, respectively, all of whom have tremendous influence within their corner of the Disney empire. Feige, 42, has been considered the key man at Marvel, producing everything from the original Iron Man through the summer's Avengers Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man, one insider, says Feige has earned the opportunity to break free from Ike Perlmutter, who is not only controlling, but also obsessed with thrift. Everybody knows that Ike is difficult, says one source close to the company. This has been a long time coming. Kevin has grown his entire career under Ike, and it now makes sense. So, uh, this broke August 31st, 2015, Age of Ultron uh, was that summer. I believe Ant-Man was the end of that summer. So they had um, they had had a pretty great summer, given that the sequel to The Avengers did very well. Obviously, Ant-Man had done very well. But this was a big, big deal. So much so that the next day, all of the different head headlines, uh, so much so all the different websites uh, had um, had played this out like here's a blog uh we minored in film.com wrote you know two days later what does kevin feige's big power play at marvel actually mean for all of us for years kevin feige had to answer to marvel's mercurial ceo ike perlmutter uh the author of this is kelly conda but it's been easy to miss something like that along with robert downey jr feige has been the one constant public face of the marvel cinematic universe outlasting directors like john favreau 
and Joss Whedon. He's been the Marvel boss, making appearances at San Diego Comic-Con every single year, along with Marvel Studios co-presidents Luis D'Esposito and Victoria Alonso. He's been the producer popping up in the special features of every MCU Blu-ray DVD to explain how the movie was made. He's the guy everyone credits for the unprecedented success of the MCU and the key evidence in many arguments for why Warner Brothers developing DC Cinematic Universe will not enjoy the same level of success. E.g., they don't have a Kevin Feige type overseeing everything. As such, it's hard to think of Feige as someone who has a boss, but the fact that he is simply a Marvel employee with a contract set to expire in 2018. He's been reporting to Ike Perlmutter this entire time, not quite as powerful in the Marvel hierarchy as many likely assumed. Not so much anymore. As the Hollywood Reporter revealed last night, Disney has restructured Marvel, making Feige and his Marvel Studios co-presidents answer on- answerable only to Walt Disney Studios chairman, Alan Horn. Perlmutter will continue running Marvel's TV and comic divisions, but will have nothing to do with the film division. Disney confirmed the news in a following statement. I read this statement to you in the original break. They're taking the next logical step in their integration, like they've done with Pixar or Lucasfilm. This comes after years, again, I'm continuing to read this article to you. Uh, this comes after years upon years of frustration, ultimately uh, leading Feige to vent to Horn earlier this summer. Birth Movies Death, a uh, uh, former, it, it's they, they changed the name of this, but at the time, Birth Movies Death was a name of a uh, very well-populated, pop, uh, 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 visited website. It had, it had a good reputation. Birth Movies Death reports that the biggest threat to the MCU has always been the ever-present fear that the penny-pinching Perlmutter would foolishly fire Feige in a cost-cutting, power-saving move. After this reorganization, that is no longer a concern for Feige. This all seems remarkably important, right? On some level, it really is. As the Hollywood Reporter's Kim Masters revealed last year, Perlmutter may have sold Marvel to Disney in 2009. And here's the deal, guys. Don't screw with Ike Perlmutter. But he had retained an iron grip on Marvel's operations and influences. Disney's and influences Disney's decisions on licensing and film studio management. Disney owns Marvel, but Ike gets to control every budget and everything spent on marketing down to the penny. What I really thought this was going to say, this is my injection now, is, is that he is the largest stockholder uh, that dis, of Disney stock. Ike is a very powerful, very influential man. Certain Disney executives were said to be actively scared of Perlmutter, paranoid to the point of fearing that he was wiretapping their calls. This is hearsay. This is, again, in this article, it says that I did not write, that I am reading, uh, written by uh, on weminoredinfilm.com by Kelly Conda. <clears throat> this assumes in this statement, certain Disney executives were said, there's your cover right there, were said to be actively scared of Perlmutter, paranoid to the point of fearing he was wiretapping their calls. It was Perlmutter's top lieutenants, not Feige, who negotiated all the lowball salaries and ultra-restrictive talents, contracts for talent. His caterer of, of choice for publicity events was always whoever was the cheapest. This restructuring is clearly a big blow to Perlmutter's power, though his mercurial ways will continue to be enjoyed by Jeff Loeb, head of Marvel Television, and the various people in charge of publishing and animation. On the opposite end, this is a huge boost for Kevin Feige. What does this mean for all of us? Maybe nothing, at least not for the foreseeable future. With Promoter removed from the equation, Feige could have more freedom to approach pricier filmmakers or break the bank to retain some of the studio's on-screen and below-the-line talent. But at the same time, 
It's hard to imagine Marvel Studios significantly altering its business model after it's been so ridiculously successful. For them, to this point, the bigger impact might simply be that Feige has less reason to walk. Once his contract expires with more breathing room, he might be more inclined to stick around on a new contract. So this restructuring is aimed more at solidifying the long term than anything any kind of impact will notice in the short term. It does also signal that Marvel's film and TV divisions are drifting further apart. An odd behind-the-scenes reality considering how connected the two sides are on a creative level. Either way, don't hold your breath waiting for Daredevil or Jessica Jones to pop up in any of your MCU movies. So this was a very big dramatic deal and it signaled a huge separation of power. Whereas again, at the end of this, Kevin Feige bought his freedom because Bob Iger bought the company from Ike Perlmutter, who he then allowed to have influence. Kevin Feige, through Alan Horn, who was the head of the Marvel, uh, not Marvel, all of Disney films, very powerful, seemed to be second only to Bob Iger at this time. Kevin Feige pleaded his case to Alan Horn. They went to Feige. Feige goes to Perlmutter and says, hey, I'm severing your control over Kevin. And now he gets to run free. He only answers to people here in Burbank, not to you. But you still get your TV projects and you still get your licensing. And that's basically how this was all carved out. But why? Well, here's the deal. Here's the subject of today's podcast. This has just hit the market. And uh, it is so popular, you will likely not find it in your bookstore. You're going to have to go online, get it probably like I did from Amazon. My wife and I, we drove out to Barnes & Noble last week. I had some gift cards that I hadn't used in well over a year. I wanted this very much. Um, uh, uh, The the, the best part of the trip was that we, you know, we were able to uh, find a new restaurant that we really dug that had opened near the Barnes and Noble because the Barnes and Noble was in fact bare. It did not have the story of Marvel Studios, the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, produced by Marvel Studios, published Marvel Studios. Okay, handsome, handsome two book volume in this ridiculously um, sturdy slipcover case. This thing's going to set you back about 150 bucks, maybe if you get a good deal on Amazon, 130. Um, this is not cheap by any means, but boy, uh, I tore through it like a hot knife through butter, through hot, like hot Wolverine claws uh, through steel, okay? I mean, I was super on fire. Well, <clears throat> we're going to really get into the weeds over a period of time about the development and the, and, and, and the bringing together of the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I did a podcast, I believe it was July It's called The Rise of the D-List. And I went out of my way to share with you how the financial markets at the time had bet against Marvel. Now, again, it only matters if you are trying to get your money from the financial markets to finance your projects, what the financial markets think about you. And in this case, this is what was happening in real time. And I'm uh, very pleased and interested to, to, to note that in this book just published, just out you know, here in early November, that the stuff that I talked to you about in July, the stuff that I had kept notes on, the I read to you from the Wall Street Journal, from Barron's, from 2005, 2006, that recommended that 
all Marvel had left was the C-list characters, the D-list characters. Rise of the D-list is worth your listen. Go back, listen to it again, get get really all the information because I was so proud of all my research, putting together all of the different magazines, some of which I had physically, some of which I had to look up. I had to get records of because I wanted you guys to hear from the mouths of the journalists who cover the financial market that they had recommended a sell of the Marvel stock. That's how ironic this was. Sell your stock, they said. Get rid of it now because Marvel does not have their big players. The X-Men, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Daredevil are spoken for at at Fox and Sony. All they've got left is the C-list, they said, okay? And D-list, they said. That's mentioned in this book. They acknowledge that right at the beginning, right at the very beginning, Marvel came up against an LA Times uh, report, and this LA Times report uh, positioned them poorly, and they were not pleased with how... You're going to hear me clanking pages as I bump together uh, and and read to you from this great, great book. This this book is a... uh, I mean, it, it, it's great. Um, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how they put together this deal. But when I read from you from the rise of the D list, uh, how the how the how the markets had bet against Marvel because they didn't recognize these characters, they didn't know and love these characters the way you guys did, the way you guys do, the way I do. Okay, uh, it says that they were preparing to go make their first uh, uh, public presentation as Marvel Studios. They were not in Hall H. You'll be interested to know in the first year, they were in one of the upstairs rooms. Uh, they were in room, you know, th- th- they were in room 6, C, D, E, F. And the Hollywood Reporter's Boris Kitt moderated it. Okay, you can see right now, Edgar Wright was there because Edgar Wright was tapped for seven years to do, um, maybe eight, to do Ant-Man. Kevin Feige's there. Louis Leteria, who directed... Uh, the the Hulk, he directed uh, one of those Class of the Titans movies. He directed, I believe, uh, uh, one of those Jason Statham movies. Not The Courier, I forget what it's called. The Transporter. Louis Leteria. Favreau is there, and Avi Arad is there. It says they all got in their car to drive down to San Diego that day to make their big presentation that afternoon uh, and, and, and tell everybody what was going on with Marvel Studios and and, and, and the movies they were going to make and get people pumped, take questions from the audience. This is the debut. This is the coming out party at Comic-Con. This is the first time Kevin Feige would address you in the way that you have become so accustomed to him addressing you. Uh, it says right here uh, that that uh, Kevin Feige made a pit stop in Oceanside, which is you know about 45 minutes from San Diego. I live in Orange County. Uh, have been born and raised here, lived here my whole life. Driving to San Diego is always so much fun. You and Oceanside is a great, you know, uh, 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 ocean ocean town, uh, uh, beach town that you pass through um, on the way to San Diego. And they had made a pit stop here uh, in Oceanside. Presumably, we're going to say to get some food. Maybe it was early, some breakfast. Uh, he picked up a copy of the LA Times. They have that shot of the LA Times in this book. Kapow, Spidey, Marvel Studios taps. Second string superheroes to grab some box office. Okay. It says right here, 
Kevin Feige picked up the copy of the LA Times and they saw the art section profile on the studios titled Kapow Spidey Marvel, Tootle, Marvel Studios tap second string superheroes to grab some box office. It was not the kind of industry appraisal they were expecting. It was not the kind of industry appraisal they were expecting. We were kind of deflated. Uh, 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 one of the producers whose name is Latcham, L-A-T-C-H-M, is quoted here. We were, we were so deflated, Latcham remembers, confused by the dismissive tone. But it says, next paragraph, the mood flipped back when they actually arrived for their 3.30 panel and found the room packed up full of amped up Marvel fans clamoring for news about what they were up to. Okay, so they acknowledge that the uh, that that the LA Times that was a bit of a gut punch. Uh, that's what the press does. That's what the press does every day. The press is doing that today to your favorite sports club, to your favorite politician, to your favorite. Out- the, the the press is challenging. They're going to challenge you. But this this acknowledges again what I cited in my July episode uh, of Rise of the D List that that the industry was banking against this being successful. Now you go back and you um, understand. What happened was a couple of dealmakers who were um, part of the Marvel Studios staff had put together a deal. They had their money man. And he had gone and raised $525 million between Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith Incorporated. The terms of this new Marvel Studios dictated that $525 million would go to produce 10 live-action films with a budget of up to $165 million each. How does that math work? Well, obviously, 10 times $165 million doesn't come out to be $525 million. What they're saying is that was their launch fund. And what they would then use is each film would make enough money to put it back in the fund. Okay? So eventually, that fund is repaid by the success of all the movies that they set out to make and the movies then start paying for themselves. But that is the terms of the deal that the $525 million was the seed money to launch this 10 picture endeavor. Okay. And again, the the movies couldn't be budgeted above $165 million. Okay. You know, seemingly they could have gone into production on, you know, five, six, $60 million movies. It's just saying that the films would have a budget of up to, which means maxed out at 165 million. Each would have to be PG rated. This is very interesting. Each would have to carry an MPP an MPAA rating of PG-13. Marvel would retain all of the film-related merchandise, and Paramount Pictures, who was chosen to distribute the titles, would um, had the first film out of this deal set to release in 2008. We all know that became Iron Man. That's a story for another time. It's very interesting. The entire Iron Man, Hulk, that summer where they launched is is an exciting summer. We're going to cover it. But uh, one, why did this Merrill Lynch, why did this financial group come forward and, and, and put forth this deal? They did it because the collateral for the deal, Marvel put up all intellectual property rights. If they failed, if they, you know, if this deal didn't work out, if they flopped, if they failed to compensate this fund, if they failed to, if they if they if they failed in their terms, what was put up was the collateral. That was the intellectual property rights to ten Marvel characters that were not already licensed to other Hollywood studios. So if the fund is out five hundred twenty five million dollars, or whatever terms that Marvel couldn't make up, maybe it's less than that. But whatever terms 
that, that, that triggered a failure of this contract. The fund, Lynch and, and this other group, the fund that is giving them the money would be able to sell these 10 characters to other studios having all the rights, licensing, all of it, in order to make their money back because there's collateral. The 10 studios were count the 10 character titles. It's not you'll you'll see it's not 10 characters, it's 10 titles. Captain America, The Avengers, Nick Fury, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Cloak and Dagger, Doctor Strange, Hawkeye, Power Pack, and Shang-Chi. Interesting how we still haven't gotten Power Pack, but for the most part, we've gotten all those other characters. Uh, we spent a lot of time putting together uh, information books on each of the characters, Kevin Feige remembers, to satisfy these investors who knew that, well, if this doesn't work out, I, I mean, if they had that, if they had this control, conceivably had Marvel not come through, again, the fund has Cap, the Avengers, obviously there was a list of who the Avengers was. I'm sure Vision and Scarlet Witch were in, baked into that Avengers, possibly Black Knight. Nick Fury, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Cloak and Dagger, Doctor Strange, Hawkeye, Power Pack, Shang-Chi. It's a good chunk. It's a good chunk. That's how the collateral was carved out. So again, in my podcast of Rise of the D-List, it really complements what I'm reading right here in this book that just came out. Uh, the sourcing that I did in bringing you those, those, those markets, I subscribed to those magazines. The reason they matter to me in 2005, 2006, when the financial magazines were making these terrible recommendations that all Marvel had left was the, the D-list, C-list characters. I had characters with better sales uh, uh, at the worst case, equal sales um, performances. Take a Youngblood, take a Prophet, Evangeline, than they were uh, putting forth in downgrading these characters. I could show on a chart, and I did. And it almost went for a completely funded Youngblood movie, but there was a deal breaker at the end. But I walked in the weekend after Iron Man opened with all those articles betting against Iron Man. Why they bet against it? It was a you know third third-rate Marvel title that no one heard of. And you're going to hear a lot about that. They they are aware of that. Marvel is aware of that as they are building out their launch and then promotion for Iron Man, given that he's not a household name like Spider-Man was, like Superman, Batman. And uh, I would walk in and show rankings, rankings, sales rankings of Thor and Iron Man in the 90s, 80s, and show that they were nowhere near the sales potency of something like Youngblood or something like Profit. And that gets business people who need to finance your deal, that gets them to sit up and take notice. Those sales matter. Those sales, those rankings, that market penetration, those eyeballs, they matter. And so I knew that those financial market magazines were wrong. But And then Iron Man just rubbed their face all, in, in all of it in 2008 with the spectacular performance of that movie. So that was why I had all that stuff. That's why that made I made that episode to show you guys that that the financial markets had made an error in their assessment of what Marvel's value was on these characters. And ultimately, it doesn't matter, uh, but it, it did because it really put Marvel in, in, in an underdog position that affected them across the board until they proved, you know, irrevocably. And it wasn't just one movie. They had to do it successive times. You'll find that out again, of course. You know, after one movie hits, how's the second and the third and the fourth? And that—that that is really the, the why 
the building of the MCU is so impressive because they rarely ever messed up. They, 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 there's a phrase, you know, slipping on a banana peel. They have yet to slip on a banana peel. Success is achieved every time that they come to bat uh, and take swings. Sometimes they take huge, huge swings like Guardians of the Galaxy and they pay off and, and we don't know that, that we needed that movie so bad at that time. And it took them three to four years of foresight to know that once they go down this road and they have to make that movie in order to get to that movie, once that movie arrives in your cineplex, it was conceived and created as far back as five, six, seven years. For myself, Deadpool, Deadpool was greenlit to make his own movie in 2009. You got it in 2016. Seven years, okay? That's my personal experience. Guardians of the Galaxy, three to four years, okay? Boy, we needed it. So that is really, I love that they are just putting all of this. I read all of this to you out of the first, there's two books in the slipcase cover of the, again, the, the story of Marvel Studios, the creation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, <clears throat> we all know that Iron Man did very well and Hulk did good enough. And, and, and that is covered in depth ad nauseum throughout this book. It's a very exciting book. Again, I cannot more highly recommend you guys grabbing this book and reading this book. But there's a very interesting aspect to this book. And on page 71, as they are prepping to do Iron Man 2, Iron Man has been a huge success. I mean, come on, guys. Um, uh, they were hoping, just, just, just so you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the deal with Iron Man was that they were hoping that they were hoping that they would, you know, make a decent amount of money. Um, that this movie would result in in profits. And uh, they had no idea. They had no idea that Iron Man would open um, as huge and be as successful, you know, as it was. It, it even says that in the hours leading up to Marvel being, being you know, released abroad worldwide, Kevin Feige was ridiculously nervous you know iron man opened at 102 million dollars okay it did 318 million domestic box office it did 585 million dollars worldwide for a movie of a character that generally the public did not know um you know the entirety of the recent x-men some X-Men films and Fantastic Four films were 157 and 154 million. So they're looking at their 318 domestic going, wow, we're onto something here. So so then Hulk did decent. It just didn't do Iron Man numbers. But both movies were profitable enough that everybody felt like they have they had, you know, really laid a very successful base for everything that was to come. And you'll read they 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 second guess. And they, you know, analyze every move they make in order that it was the most, you know, positive, successful, profitable move so that they can make more. And again, all of this discussion of power, Kevin Feige's power, Ike Perlmutter's power, Iger's power, the power is desired so that they can do what they want, that they can make the decisions that they want to make with less fights. That's really what it comes down to. It's not so they can have a big, giant, golden limo drive them down Hollywood Boulevard where they can, you know, shake their, you know hands and cheer to, to adoring crowds. The power that these people are achieving, the reason they want it is so that they can do more of what they're doing easier in the way that they want to do it. Well, 
before 2008 ended, at the end of the summer of Iron Man and the Hulk being released, uh, it was suggested that the wealth of comic knowledge from Marvel Comics would be very useful, a very useful pool to dip into, and that there was talent uh, within Marvel New York because Kevin Feige and his crew uh, are all in Burbank. They're all in. They're all in LA. New York Marvel uh, suggested that they they set up a meeting to create the to to, to create a committee. The creative committee was born. I'm reading right here. A meeting was set up with Marvel's this is page 70 of the story of Marvel Studios, the birth of the cinematic Marvel Universe. A meeting was set up with Marvel Comics President of Publishing, Dan Buckley, Marvel Chief Creative Officer, Joe Quesada, and comic book writers, Brian Michael Bendis, Ralph Macchio, Mark Miller, and editor Tom Brevoort. Ideas that were shared in that informal environment with Kevin Feige, John Favreau, were deemed useful in 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 in, in formulating what was to come with Iron Man, Iron Man Two. Marvel Entertainment President Alan Fine decided the Comic Collective would become a formal entity. That entity would be known as the Marvel Creative Committee, and Marvel and and Alan Fine would be the chairman. He would be the chairman of that committee. This is key. Okay. From Iron Man 2 onward, Marvel Studios had to provide the creative committee that was based in New York and chaired by Dan Buckley, Joe Quesada, Brian Bendis, Ralph Macchio, Mark Miller, and Tom Brevoort, among the names that they're naming in this Marvel publication that that creative committee would um, need to be provided uh, script drafts. They would address any notes that they had from anything all the way through casting and story development. It was not long, this writes, before friction kicked in. People firmly dug in on things they believed were key to making Iron Man 2 work. It was brewing every single day. It was a really tough process the entire way through. But the release date on Iron Man 2 had been set. There was no choice but to figure out a way to make this new situation work and fight to deliver the best movie possible. The uh, Kevin Feige created his own kind of studio committee. And he had a retreat in Palm Springs. Kevin Feige, John Favreau, and this uh, producer, Mr. Latcham. And they all went down to Palm Springs to discuss how better to... Um, expand what they had started on Iron Man. But but they, they are writing about this. They are telling you about this because the committee looms. And in the course of this book, the committee kind of looms throughout every single year. This book goes through and charts all of the different success and the different fights along the way that the committee uh, would... Not fights. Forgive me. The conflicts the, the committee would have with Feige and his brain trust. <clears throat> What um, what one of the uh, the the interesting aspects is they headed into two thousand nine and it is chapter three, page eighty one, forging forward, the all consuming question facing Marvel Studios at the top of two thousand nine. How do you follow up a year that literally put the studio on the map? You survive. It surmises. It says you 
survive. With the industry assessing their every move going forward and global audiences having elevated expectations about their promised state, slate, slate, their promised slate, living up to the hype was now a worry. As a studio, they were still a lean operation, but the workload had expanded exponentially. For the first time, the stakes felt exponentially serious and at times less fun. They had made promises to their financial backers they were bound to make good on. The increasing involvement of Marvel Entertainment's creative committee in New York was becoming an issue, and everyone in every department was responsible for so much more. The increasing involvement of Marvel's Entertainment Creative Committee in New York was becoming an issue. So this continues throughout the book, the idea that the committee and Feige are um, in conflict um, time and again. And where I'm going to kind of go to the boiling point, I'm going to skip over uh, the biggest, and they've been covered, I, I saw when this book was released, kind of the the uh, the story that, that everyone pushed out there to give this book the juice to make sure that you knew that it was, it was out there, that you, like me, would hopefully buy it. Uh, was this conflicts they had with James Gunn. The creative committee had tremendous conflicts with James Gunn throughout the Guardians of the Galaxy. It is outlined later in the first book. Again, there are two brilliant books uh, that make up the two volumes in this uh, slipcase. Uh, they had problems with James. Uh, almost, they had so many of his creative choices. The music, the dancing, all of it. Uh, the creative committee was um, at kind of odds with James Gunn throughout and it was very frustrating not only to James Gunn but to Kevin Feige and everybody else involved that is an a, a, a one of the um one of the most obvious kind of uh, uh examples of the conflict that would brew between let's call it New York and LA New York and LA because Marvel Comics is still located in New York City and uh Kevin Feige and all his guys all his lieutenants all his and his women um, uh, the, the Marvel staff has many fantastic female producers, contributors. Uh, in volume two, because this is where I'm going to just jump to where things come to really ahead and why we get to where we get in that Hollywood Reporter exclusive Kevin Feige breaks free. Vital disruption. Vital disruption is the headline that I'm going to read from you guys. In the section, page 12 of book two of this uh, story of Marvel Studios. By the point, by this point, and this, okay, so this is around Civil War. They are about to film Civil War. They are filming Civil War uh, during this announcement that puts Kevin Feige uh, answerable only now to Iger uh, and the uh, head of the, the film division and se severs Feige from the New York control. Uh, they are making Civil War. The, there are fights going on behind the scenes of Civil War that we find out, I found out, the specifics of, only by reading this book. I'd always heard stuff, but this puts it, I mean, this is a Marvel book. Marvel is publishing this book. I am reading from a Marvel publication. By the point in Marvel, by this point in Marvel Studios' lifespan, Kevin Feige, Luis D'Esposito, and Victoria Alonso, the brilliant um, producing uh, partners that Kevin has around him, Victoria Alonso even had her, her own commercial for one of those electronic pads at this time. They had become so successful. Victoria Alonso, it wasn't the iPad, it's the rival and how and 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 the uh, illustrative components and that you could do storyboards and 
and, and check movie stuff. Um, it's really interesting. Victoria Alonso. I mean, they, 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 this is around that time. This is around the time all this stuff is starting to swirl. Okay. <clears throat> they were finding themselves progressively at major impasses with the powers that be at Marvel Entertainment in New York City. Okay, that is to kind of did some side uh, commentary. I'll just read it to you straight. By this time in Marvel Studios' lifespan, Kevin Feige, Luis D'Esposito, and Victoria Alonso, along with their inner internal creative executive producers were finding themselves progressively at major impasses with the powers that be at Marvel Entertainment in New York. Around this time on the business side, a progression of choices made by New York would impact the continuing development of Marvel Studios. Let me read that again. Around this time on the business side, a progression of choices made by New York would impact the continuing development slate of Marvel Studios and the impact would be ongoing years into the future. In 2013, when the 2012 deadline for 20th Century Fox to make a sequel to their 2003 Daredevil film lapsed, Matt Murdock and Electro reverted back to Marvel's pool of usable characters. New Line, likewise, gave Blade back to Marvel in 2012, and when Sony's Ghost Rider franchise fizzled with the 2011 Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance release, he also came back in-house, along with Sony's license for a never-produced Luke Cage movie. Last but not least, Lionsgate's license for The Punisher reverted back to Marvel Entertainment. While many observers assume that this entire stable of characters, and that's a lot, I mean, we're talking Ghost Rider, Luke Cage, The Punisher, Daredevil, Elektra, Blade. While many observers assume that this entire stable of characters would go directly into Marvel Studios' movie development process, it was decided by Marvel Entertainment's higher-ups that because the movie side was already deeply committed to their successful Avengers characters and the impending Guardians of the Galaxy characters, that the return that these returnee characters would instead be used to help build a planned television empire under the direct control of Marvel New York. Entirely separate from Marvel Studios under Feige. The film side had no control whatsoever over those characters despite their interest in developing them. Instead, they all went to Marvel Entertainment, which is the TV division. Ghost Rider appeared in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and others were placed in different streaming series. Over on the film creative side, everything from script critiques to deciding whether characters would get their movies greenlit were now friction points with the New York Creative Committee. What began in the early days as suggestions had elevated a hardline stance against creative decisions made by the studio and its hires. For the Russo brothers and writers Marcus and McFeely, the specific note too far, with quotes, this is the note too far, where they went too far from the creative committee was about civil war. In the final act of the movie, rather than having Cap and Iron Man fight each other, they wanted them to come together, unite the Avengers, and battle the super soldiers that were in all of those different um, kind of holding tanks or in those, you know, in those sarcophaguses um, at the end of Civil War. Sidebar, Civil War, the comic book, was a huge success. Huge pieces of talent. Mark Miller, Steve... Uh, McNiven were the perfect choice to pull off this super event series that Marvel had put out. It's kind of the pinnacle of that era. Uh, I personally feel that that is it is the pinnacle. They've never kind of outdone what Civil War did. But Civil War, the comic book and Civil War, the movie didn't have a whole lot in common. The only thing they had in common really was the ending with Tony versus Cap. In the comic book, a act of terrorism by a supervillain... Uh, but, but, a, a superhero, supervillain fight blows up 
a school of kids killing kids, killing innocent kids. It's way too rough for movie audiences. This created the Superhero Act that demanded superheroes register and be known to the government. Along the along the lines uh, along the way of this extremely this great comic book, Peter Parker took his costume off, removed his mask, and revealed revealed himself to be Spider Man at a news conference. It was a big, huge element of the appeal of the Civil War comic book series, as was the excellent, you know, art by Steve McNiven. The growing sides, the growing the friction with who's with Cap, who's with Iron Man, and then they all kind of met in this giant battle in Manhattan. And Cap and Iron Man have a fight at the at the climax of the Civil War comic book. That is as uh, that 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 is more. It, it's bigger than we saw in the Civil War film, but the stakes are the same. Who's going to follow what? Um, you know, what what belief? What prerogative? And uh, in the film, obviously, the Sarkovia Accords are the catalyst for the military and the government wanting to have superheroes registered. And so, obviously, Steve stands against it. He gets his team. Iron Man gets his team. The the the, the, the battle at the uh, airport is kind of like, it's super fun, but even that on film is nowhere near as big as the battles waged in the comic book. Um, in the comic book, it was fun to like, w- which side is Punisher going to come out on? Um, it, 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 the comic book was great. It's epic. It's one of their best sellers. It has to be. It's fantastic. Miller and uh, Steve McNiven just crushed it. Brilliant. The bones of that miniseries are what the movie was, you know, centered around. Black Panther did not play the scene came did not play anywhere near the key role that he did in the Civil War comic because he did in the movie, which was significant. Neither did Winter Soldier play the giant role. So they really shifted. The, the, the Civil War movie is not reflective uh, of the Civil War comic book, other than it pits Cap versus. Iron Man in a completely different set of circumstances. But at the end of this movie, I think it's one of the strengths, one of the great strengths of the Civil War movie is this terrific showdown between Iron Man and Cap. And you really feel uh, the loss of their friendship that at that point and, 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 and the betrayal and the frustration. And of course, there's the backstory with Warner Soldier having, uh, having, having affected, you know, Tony Stark's actual family, his personal life. So, so the, the, the movie played to an audience that had grown up with the MCU and it used the very basic str- framework and structure that the comic book had without any of the comics kind of scale, scope, even plot devices. But it got us to the same place. Cap versus, you know, Tony. Steve versus Tony. Well, the creative committee here wanted that all wrapped up. They wanted them to unite and battle all those super soldiers um, in that, you know, Arctic base <clears throat> at the end with Baron Zemo, you know, trying to activate all the super soldiers. Well, I, I guess he was trying to kill all the super soldiers, but all the super soldiers were then going to rise. Here, here's this how, how's this play, how this plays out. According to Marcus and McFeely, we had a draft where they had a fight in a submarine base with five of the super soldiers. McFeely explains about their efforts to respond to the creative committee's note. It proved, however, to be an exhausting and thankless exercise. To do that is to begin to do what everyone's always accusing superhero movies of doing, which is not caring about the level of damage. Marcus lays out, it's a formula for running your company into the ground. This is I'm reading their opinions in a Marvel publication. We kept saying there's nothing interesting about this film. 
Joe Russo says, of the brothers' united response against the revised note from the creative committee. We are not here to make that movie. We are not interested in telling another superhero story like that. Believing passionately that Tony and Steve should represent diametrically opposed points of view in Civil War was a concept that the brothers, the Russo brothers, and Marcus and McFeely had spent a lot of time shaping and presenting to understandably uh, concerned factions within the studio. We are very zen, Joe Russo asserts, but we're also very stubborn. Just as they had done earlier with Kevin Feige about going all in with the Civil War concept, the Russos dug in their heels. We wanted to flip this on its head. Joe Russo continues, we wanted to surprise the audience. They passionately believed with sheer determination and precise tonal calibration that they should be able to pull off the Tightwire Act and have both Starks and Rogers' worldviews feel right and wrong within the same movie. Feige agreed, as did Robert Downey Jr. As the custodian of Tony Stark for going on eight years at this time, Downey Jr. was deeply invested in all the facets of this character's development and ongoing arc. Respecting that, the Russos planned several meetings to pitch the actor every beat of Tony's unexpected path going forward. What happens here is the Russos really work to get fight, to get um, Robert Downey Jr. in their corner. It says here, we spent a lot of time talking to Robert about the creative level. As it turns out, Robert wasn't an easy sell. That's interesting to hear. But the pair were undeterred. The fascinating thing about anyone who's super successful in the business is that they're very, very good at making you work to prove to them why the idea is valid. Joe Russo continues. We were convinced that if we put in the work to convey to Downey Jr. our passion for this idea, he would feel the same passion and go on this journey with us. Robert has a character to take care of, Joe Russo says. This is the biggest movie star in the world at the time, playing the most famous character in the world at the time. And we were sitting there going, now listen, you're going to try to kill Captain America at the end of the movie, but we're going to get you there in a way that's totally believable and the audience will understand. That's the kind of meeting where Downey Jr. should say, Get the fuck out of here and don't let the door hit you on the ass. But Downey is as intelligent as you would imagine him to be and as gifted as you would imagine him to be. So we really, really had thoughtful con- uh, conversations with him about the character. This is Joe Russo talking. In turn, the Russo brothers, who had not even worked with the actor yet, walked away appreciating how much he brought to their creative table. His insight even helped them iron out a couple of areas in the script that they were struggling with. Of course, over the course of these meetings, Downey became very emotionally invested in this direction of the movie. As the production start date got closer, because this is getting good, guys. As the production start gate date um, got closer, the Russos moved towards it, confident that Feige and executive producer Nate Moore, Downey Jr., and Chris Evans were all on board. But the notes from the creative committee in New York became more heated. They now required... And that re- and this word is in parenth is is in italics. Required these changes to be made. Joe Russo says we reached a point where we said out loud in a room we're not interested in continuing as the directors of th- of this movie, if this is going to be about managing politics and this third act. Anthony adds. Kevin was very energized and fortified by that, and also maybe it gave him some leverage in the situation because we were so clear about our point of view. From the birth of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige served as the point man and then eventually the buffer between the vision of the studio 
and the New York committee. He could always, he could all, almost always distill committee notes into productive changes or negotiate compromises that would appease both sides before it directly imp impacted the creatives on the ground. But Civil War represented a foundational impasse about what the heart of this movie should be. Kevin Feige now found himself in a position where he was in alignment with the filmmakers, yet trying to manage relationships that were completely falling apart. The creative chasm couldn't be any wider, but Feige knew supporting their shared vision of Civil War was the right thing to do. The irony was not lost on anyone that Civil War was becoming the breaking point for everyone involved. Here's the quote. Here's the quote of the book. Civil War started a literal civil war in Marvel, Joe Russo admits. But we drew the line in the sand it became a moment where the company was either going to slowly bend back towards where it had come from or it was going to slowly start to bend towards all new territory. As all the turmoil was playing out, Nate Moore, one of the producers, was on site in Atlanta with his department heads, building sets and settling and setting up to roll camera. But the silence from the main offices was deafening. Something was definitely happening because Kevin wasn't calling me back. Louis Esposito wasn't calling me back. People were not in the office. Nate Moore says, when we finally got Feige on the phone, Feige on the phone, Moore says he was honest that the once simmering issues with New York were now boiling over and it was all coming to a head. The pressure was mounting now for Disney to do something because you have a juggernaut that was happening, adds Joe Russo. It was too expensive and there was a start date. The stalemate indeed made its way all the way up to Alan Horn, the chairman of Walt Disney Studios. The creative committee made their case about their vision for Civil War. Separately, Alan Horn, the head of all Disney films, brought in the Russos and Feige to provide their viewpoint to him. They wanted to sit us down and have us say, tell us what you see so that we can make an intelligent decision about the direction that we are going to go in. It was literally uh, us sitting in a room with Alan Horn having a conversation telling him how we felt about the script and our passion for the storytelling. The big thing I used to say all the time is people tell you how much they love chocolate ice cream. You give it to them six days a week. They're going to throw it in your face on day six. And the problem is if you have three chocolate ice creams in the can at $200 million a pop, you're screwed. So you better start figuring out ahead of time how to be disruptive after hearing both sides and weighing all the impact on the final story as well as the future movies to come. Alan Horn agreed with Kevin Feige and the Russo brothers. Their direction was the way to go. While that decision cleared the way for Captain America Civil War to begin production as scheduled on April 27th of 2015, it did not solve the very visible problems between Marvel Studios and the Creative Committee in New York. At the executive offices in Burbank, the whole incident ignited a summer of deep in-house soul-searching about how they would move forward. Feige, D'Esposito, Alonzo, Latcham, and Brossard had all experienced years of committee interactions that had forced budgetary and creative compromises and impacted not only their day-to-day -day jobs, but also dictated how they ex executed the Marvel Studios slate. For the first time, moving forward, per usual, in quotes, per usual, was not a sufficient option for anyone anymore. Whoa! Well, that's how you get to... That's That decision happened right before filming in the spring of 2015 and set Kevin Feige on his path. And ultimately what happened is that uh, Disney sided with Feige 
and the Russos <clears throat> over ruling the creative committee of which then would be disbanded by the end of that summer. The creative committee was disbanded over civil war. Civil war, literally. I did not know this. I did not know this to this extent, but it is being printed. It is raw right here for you to experience uh, in, in this, in this, you know, retrospect, retrospective uh, look at, at what happened um, the summer of 2015. And uh, I mean, I, it, th th that is, that is more information than I had um, expected to receive. And what I am flipping to, I believe it's right here. I believe it is right here. Uh, let's see. Well, I've already given it to you. And that is, um, you know, the headline that we got. That that the, the, uh, the creative committee was disbanded. Kevin now no longer had to worry about their notes, their input, and the movie moved, the, the entire endeavor moved into a different, um, a different kind of sphere. He had, uh, uh, he had an all new, um, he, he had, he had more power, um, than he had ever had prior to that. And the New York committee was disbanded, um, and, and they were no longer involved in the films going forward from Civil War. So everything you saw post-Civil War is without the committee. And I guess you're left to decide, what do you think of the product you got? What, what do you think of it? Um, it really is a fascinating insight. What, what is, um, I think, most interesting is uh, that, this, that right before the pandemic, there was yet another. So this is, this is uh, four years after what we started that this uh, four years after the headline that started this podcast where Kevin Feige, you know, wins this showdown with Marvel, New York, <clears throat> Kevin Feige now holds more power. Sorry. Kevin Feige now holds the power at Marvel and Disney. This is written by Jamie Sargent. Kevin, this is uh, October 16th, 2019. Kevin Feige now holds the power at Marvel and DC. And <laughs> Kevin Feige now holds the power at Marvel and Disney. The architect of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the head of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige, has been given the keys to the entire Marvel empire. In 2015, Marvel Studios, the movie production arm of Marvel, was moved to be under Walt Disney Studios, away from the Marvel Entertainment Division. Due to disagreements between the direction of the MCU and the increasing budgets of the films and creative decisions with Marvel Studios' executive team. At the point, at that point, Kevin Feige had more than proved himself with the roster of films he had produced, and so it was a sure bet for Disney to give him autonomy. But now, again, October of 2019, Kevin Feige has come full circle with his appointment to Chief Creative Officer of Marvel Entertainment. What does this mean for Marvel as a whole? He will now be able to steer the entire direction of Marvel's roster of characters, and it means that Marvel Entertainment bosses now report to Feige. This will give him more control over everything Marvel creates, from comics from comics, to movies and TV shows. <clears throat> Marvel Television, which was a part of Marvel Entertainment, will now be folded into Marvel Studios and allow the television and film franchises to become more interconnected. For years, Marvel Television paid lip service to the films, yet the films have mostly ignored the events of shows such as Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The Marvel TV shows 
that will be streamed on Disney Plus are already produced under the Marvel Studios banner, so it is a natural progression for the rest of the TV roster to follow suit. Kevin Feige is now one of the most influential creatives at Disney. Let me let me add, this is what this report is saying. Kevin Feige is now one of the most influential creatives in Hollywood in creative space, period. I'll continue with, that was my addendum. Not only does he have overall power, you got to remember, let me, let me step out of this real quick. You got to remember, this is after Infinity War and Endgame, that incredible summer of, of, you know, May to May. Infinity War then queues up Endgame. They make four gazillion billion dollars. Um, it's hugely successful. Marvel is, is thriving in a way that it has never thrived before at this point. <clears throat> Not only does he have overall power at Marvel, but Feige is also developing a new Star Wars film, which will no doubt increase his influence over another behemoth film franchise. It's safe to say that Disney trusts Feige completely, and who can blame them? Marvel Studios has produced multiple billion-dollar grossing movies and holds the crown of the most profitable film of all time. It would be reckless for Disney not to give Kevin Feige more power. So... That is um, extremely uh, interesting that by 2019, um, uh, Kevin had built on what was given to him in 2015. Uh, you know, the Daily Variety on October 22nd did an editorial about does Kevin Feige's Marvel promotion mean, mean Ike Perlmutter's Endgame? said last week's move giving Kevin Feige charge of Marvel's television, animation, and print editorial operations should come as no surprise. As the architect of the company's enormous film success, Feige arguably has the most enviable track record of any contemporary entertainment executive, extending his creative control over more of the Marvel Universe team like a no-brainer. Some insiders were stunned that Feige's gain came at the expense of Ike Perlmutter, Marvel Entertainment CEO, and the largest single shareholder of its corporate parent, the Walt Disney Company. To see Perlmutter, who had already lost control of the film's unit in a vicious turf war with, in a vicious turf war with Feige and Disney in 2015, be forced to cede nearly all creative authority at the company that he has run for 20 years came as a shock to many. None more surprised by the move than the Marvel executives who learned of this change through trade press reports that heralded it. The lack of clear communication to the stockholders <clears throat> underscores the growing industry impression uh, of of the absolute power that Kevin Feige wields. Um, so uh, this is Daily Variety surmising. Um, it, 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 it really lays that it... Um, here's the paragraph I'll leave you with. How Disney's largest shareholder could be so effectively put in the corner. Again, this is Daily Variety I'm reading from. is a mystery to those inside Marvel. One person who works at Disney <clears throat> traces... Uh, Marvel New York's most recent loss of territory back to a period leading up to the 2015 Marvel Studios split when Disney sided with when uh when, when when New York sorry when Marvel New York sided with Alan Fine a longtime lieutenant um over Cobb Feige they sided with Alan Fine over Feige Fine was a member of Perlmutter's creative committee which provided input on Marvel films and was considered responsible for several projects being delayed Alan Fine opposed Kevin Feige's efforts to greenlit greenlight Movies around female superheroes. Clashes with Alan Fine are believed to have contributed to Feige's desire to be rescued from the New York sphere of influence. What happened uh, in 2015 
had huge resonance and it all started in the civil war within the civil war that's a quote right out of that book the civil war movie created a literal civil war between marvel's divisions and and that is how everything played out kevin feige was rewarded with power in 2015 and was rewarded with publishing television to go with his movie power in 2019 it is an astounding rise uh, it is an astounding success. The success of the MCU is like nothing I have experienced in my lifetime. And I thought that there were franchises that would never be eclipsed, such as Star Wars, also owned by Disney. So, you know, they, they win-win. The, the, the biggest franchise in the world got replaced by another big franchise that they happen to have complete control over. So that is our dance with this amazing book, The Story of Marvel Studios. The birth of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in stores now. It is a handsome coffee table slipcase cover edition. It is beautiful. I highly recommend reading it. I am pouring over it. The detail, the um, the history, the rawness with which they are discussing each and every decision and the process, how they got there, is fascinating. I cannot, cannot recommend it more highly. This is the time in the show where I read your reviews that you are so generous to leave for me because this this show needs your support um, in, in the worst possible way. I love I love that you guys are so passionate about this show. Thank you so much for the passion that you express in these amazing reviews that you leave. Today I am reading from you, verbing the noun. Verbing the noun. Uh, this podcast brought back my love of comic books. That is the most heartwarming thing I am going to read, okay? Thank you, verbing the noun. His name is actually Jason, but the 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 the, the, the I always get the uh, he signs it Jason, but the tag that he posted this under is verbing the noun. I started listening to this podcast around the eighth or ninth episode, and I've been hooked ever since. Rob's deep dive into comic books and the history has renewed my own love of comic book collecting. It was almost thirty years since I've bought comics, but after listening to the show regularly, I've realized how much I missed it. I've since bought more comic books in the past year listening to this show than I have in my entire childhood. Rob's love for comics shows every episode and has gotten me to read comic books I would have never read otherwise. What a great show. I look forward to every new episode. If there was a negative to be said, it is that it is only on twice a week. Thank you for what you do, Jason. Jason, this is maybe the best review I've ever had. The fact that you weren't reading comics, but you are now, and, and you lay that at the feet of this show is so humbling, but exciting for me because I want you to go out and buy comics and support retailers and publishers and artists and creators. So thank you, Jason. Thank you for this. Th that is the way to end a show. I am on a high. Um, you guys, thank you, Jason. Thank you for that really sweet note. Thank you. That is a re That really touched me. You guys, I am all over social media. You can reach me um, uh, across all of the social media platforms. We really need your uh, positive reviews, five stars, subscriptions, word of mouth. Um, just you guys, thank you so much. I do this show for fun. I do this show for just the absolute experience of doing it. And I'm glad that what I am doing for my own pleasure and fun is reaching you and touching you and, and motivating you. I am all over social media. You can reach me and, t and, and, and talk to me on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld. Full name, Robert Liefeld with the blue check. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Same thing, blue check. That's really me. Um, you guys talk at me. I, I I love talking back to you guys in all of the messages, the DMs, the the replies, the mentions. 
I'm all over Facebook. I got so many Facebook groups. I got so many. I'm all over that page. I got multiple. I got groups. I got pages. I got my profile. I love talking to you guys. I love reading your comments. I love expressing ideas with you guys and 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 uh, all, all sorts of different um, back and forth. And I love you know I love our conversations. Thank you so much for having them with me, you guys. This is the time of the show where you are going to dedicate to me that you're gonna take care of yourselves. I know you are. You're gonna take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves emotionally, mentally, physically. Get that rest. Enjoy life. Laugh. Have great times with friends. Read comic books. Come on. Read comic books. Uh, So you're going to stay safe. You are absolutely going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 